0: Today on something you should know, the importance of kissing. Just doing it sends messages on many levels. Then who doesn't love a bargain, but there is a bigger cost to low prices.
1: So we've compromised things like quality, craftsmanship, durability, style, things like that. We've made compromises because we're so induced by price, we're so seduced by price.
0: Then wait, how come kids get the whole summer off school? I'll tell you the real reason, which is not the one you likely think. And the chronic diseases we tend to get are the result of a lot of factors, including gum disease, inflammation, and even your faith.
2: People who have what is called an intrinsic faith, meaning that they're, they're committed to their faith. They have lower rates of heart disease, lower cancer rates, etc., etc., etc. Science couldn't tell you what to believe, but whatever you do believe, believe it intently.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. You know, in every single episode of this podcast, you will hear me make reference to the show notes that a guest's book or their website is available in the show notes for this episode. But I often get emails from listeners asking questions, the answers to which are in the show notes. So they must not know what or where the show notes are, so perhaps it's worth a quick review. But the show notes are a written text description of what's in the program, and that written description, which I write, is attached to the audio file. So wherever you find the audio for this podcast, you will find that written text description whether it's on our website or TuneIn or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever. So as a quick example, if you were to use the podcast app on your iPhone, the one that came with the iPhone, you would go to this podcast. You would either search this podcast or find it on the charts and click on it, and it would take you to a page that has the name of the show, Something You Should Know, Mike Carruthers' Wondery, and the Something You Should Know logo. And below that, it says Recent Episodes. And if you click on the word Details in one of the recent episodes, it will bring up a description of the episode, a written description that you can read. Those are the show notes. First up today, kissing. When couples kiss, they exchange a lot of information on a subconscious level. And this is information that could affect the course of the rest of their lives. Researchers found that a woman who kisses a man, can detect information about his immune system and his genetic makeup that can help her decide whether he'd make a good mate, whether he'd be likely to father healthy children, and would be around long enough to help bring them up. Men and women also tend to prefer different types of kisses. In general, women prefer less tongue and more tenderness, whereas men tend to prefer a wet, sloppy kiss. One reason is that a man's saliva contains testosterone, a male sex hormone that can stimulate a woman's libido. By the way, if you think that the kiss a bride and groom share after exchanging their wedding vows is pure romance, think again. When ancient Romans reached an agreement, they would kiss to legally seal the contract. That practice extended into the marriage contract as well, And it has continued to be a common practice in modern times, even though most couples are unaware of its significance. And that is something you should know. Who doesn't love a bargain? So many of our purchase decisions are made because of the price. The lower the price, the better. But I'm sure you've purchased things at a low price and later regretted it because... Whatever it was you bought wasn't made very well, or it didn't look, work, or do what you really wanted. Still, we we like low prices, and we import a lot of cheap products from other countries because they're cheaper to make there, so they're cheaper to sell here. And that feeds right into our passion for low prices. But what's this passion for low prices doing to us? Well, one person who's looked at this is Ellen Rupel-Shell. She is a writer for The Atlantic magazine and professor at Boston University. She's also the author of a book called Cheap, The High Cost of Discount Culture. Hi, Ellen. So what is your contention here? What is the high cost of low prices?
1: First off, we come to think of price first when we make purchases, and that's really new. Historically, we put value first. And the, the last uh, century or so, we've been induced to put price first. There are many uh, advantages to manufacturers and the stockholders for us to be putting price first, but there are fewer advantages to us as a consumer. So we've given up things like, or we've compromised things like quality, craftsmanship, durability, style, uh, fit in clothing, things like that. We've made compromises because we're so induced by price, we're so seduced by price, and there are many psychological reasons for that.
0: Well, we've seen that, especially around you know holiday time or after Black Friday, when prices are dropped really low, and people go nuts.
1: Low price uh, sparks a reaction in the brain, uh, much like a winning a game. It uh, sparks our impulsive side, and we enjoy that kind of uh, experience. And it often clouds our more reason side, so we often make decisions impulsively based on price, and when we bring those things home, more likely than not, we're, we're disappointed with them.
0: But it seems to me that just for everyday purchases, if I can save some money and keep more of my own money in my own pocket, what's the harm? I mean, this going for a low price on so many things seems pretty innocuous.
1: Well, it starts a, a, a kind of a chain reaction. So when we seek the lowest possible price, that means that the manufacturer of that uh, product has to squeeze the lowest possible price out of the suppliers. And many of us work for these suppliers, or we work indirectly for these suppliers. So what we haven't noticed is, as, is that as the price of consumer goods has gone down uh, since the 1970s substantially, uh, for most consumer goods, the prices have gone down. Um, our income has been flat, and our expenditures has gone up, have gone up. Okay, so on the average, Americans their income has not increased since the 1970, controlled for inflation. Corporate profits have have more than doubled. At the same time, we spend less for clothes, less for food, less for appliances, and even less for owning and maintaining a car. So as we spend less on these things, the cost of things that we cannot live without. For example, health care, education for our children has skyrocketed at the same time that our wages and benefits have have flatlined. So we've gone into debt to pay for these essentials. So we've been able to get tube socks for less than a dollar a pair, but we can't send Johnny and Mary off to college.
0: But what well, now well, no, wait a minute, but if if I can somehow sell tube socks for a dollar and still make money, that's that's capitalism, that's American capitalism, and good for me, and it has very little to do with whether or not Johnny can go to college, and in fact, you know, that's what drives uh, our economic engine, is to is to be able to sell things efficiently.
1: Well, not necessarily. Historically, there have been great objections to low price. In fact, historically, we've had laws to keep um, price-cutting, under control, okay? That said, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that we reinstitute these laws. I'm suggesting that people consider when they buy something, they buy those tube socks for fifty cents for a dollar, how those tube socks got to them, and what price they're paying in real terms for those socks.
0: But but how would I ever know, and why would I want to take the time to think about what went into making these socks and why they're so cheap? If a store is selling tube socks for 50 cents, and I want tube socks, and these socks fit me, and I need them, and they're only 50 cents, and I want to buy them, why would I give thought to any of what you just
1: said? <laughs> well, you may worry about the quality. We oftentimes don't think about the product that we're buying. We look at the price, and we're, we're encouraged to look. It's not our fault. We're encouraged to look first at the price. You know, I was watching television last week. It was really funny. It was one advertisement after another, and the first thing that, that I learned about each of these different products was how low the price was. It was there were uh, advertisements for food, commercials for food. There were commercials for cars, commercials for clothing. And one after another, the prices were, were being paraded across the screen before I even knew what I was buying. So, for example, many things that are sold as good deals are really not a very good deal. When we get discounts, by, by definition, a discount means that some of us are paying more for something than others, right? It has to be, right, by discount. That means that someone supposedly is getting a short end of the deal and some of us are getting the, the, the good end of the deal, right? Okay, but that's not really the case. Many things are cheap because they're cheap. <laughs> they're, they're poorly made or they're, they were inexpensive to produce. So you're not getting something that's necessarily what you really want. You're getting something that's low price. And a great example of this um, are some of the fast food um, breakfasts that are provided for under $5 or $6. And it looks like a lot of food. It looks like a great deal. But you look at that plate, and there's nothing on that plate that you couldn't produce more cheaply at home.
0: I'm speaking with Ellen Rupel-Shell. She is a writer for The Atlantic magazine, a professor at Boston University and author of the book, Cheap, The High Cost of Discount Culture. You know, a lot of my listeners have switched toothbrushes recently to the Quip toothbrush. How do I know? Well, because I get emails telling me, and also because Quip has become a loyal advertiser, which means that Something You Should Know listeners are responding to their message and buying. Smart move. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibration to clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. And I love this because it helps me brush better. And here's another cool thing. Quip delivers new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months, just $5, including shipping worldwide. And it's not just me who likes Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List and named one of Time's Best Inventions. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com something right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com something. Spell G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com something. getquip.com something. So, Ellen, don't you think this quest for the lowest price is somewhat human nature? I mean, who hasn't bought something, some clothes item that was on sale that was such a good deal, and it's still hanging in your closet with the tags on because you bought it because it was such a good deal, but it's really not something you'd ever wear?
1: Right. I mean, I opened my book talking about that very thing. I was shopping for a pair of boots to go with an outfit that I had bought on sale, So I went to my store, my local store, and I tried on a bunch of boots. And none of them fit very well, and none of them were looking that great. And I asked him, look, do you have some Italian boots in the store or some Spanish boots in the store? Because these were all Chinese boots. (laughs) And he said, yeah, I have a couple of pairs. And he went and he got me a pair. And they were great. They were really great. But they were a lot more expensive than the Chinese boots. So I bought the Chinese boots. I wore them once. I threw them in the back of my closet because they didn't really fit very well, and they weren't that great-looking anyway. I never wore them again. And it made me think, because I added this, uh, these boots to what I call my pile of shame, which is a pile in the back of my closet of stuff that I, is not the right color or not the right fit or really not what I wanted. And I looked at that pile of shame, and I thought, you know, this is something that needs rethinking.
0: So what, what's the advice here? I mean, knowing what you know and what you've learned from doing this research. How do you shop differently than when you were buying those boots?
1: Oh, I shop completely differently now. I I really do. I used to comparison shop for everything. You know, rather than going in and thinking, what is it that I really wanted, I really was very deal prone. I really liked getting good deals. Now, when I go in shopping, I think about what is it that I want, and what is good quality? And I, look, I try to find what I want first and look at the price second. Now, obviously, I have a balanced to budget. You know, I have kids, I have expenses, and I have to be careful. But if I can't get the quality I want for the price I want to pay, I delay the purchase if I can. And that has, that has changed the amount of stuff that I have and the amount of stuff I bring into the house. And it's changed my perception of, Products. Why do I want this? Why do I need this? What am I looking for? The most important thing is when I buy something that it has to work for me. So if I buy a wrench, it's got to work. It doesn't matter how cheap it is. First and foremost, it's got to work. It's got to be a good wrench. Okay. In the past, I really would be motivated by price, and I would buy many things that would end up uh, either going to the mission, or going to the garbage, or going to um, the back of my closet.
0: But aren't there plenty of things that are inexpensive, i.e. cheap, that work just fine? I mean, if if you're going to buy a screwdriver, you could buy it from a very expensive boutique-y kind of hardware store, or you can go to Walmart or wherever and get a cheap screwdriver, and it's probably going to turn the screw just fine.
1: There are some products that are just fine. You're right. I'm not saying that you have to pay a premium for everything you buy. Definitely not. Anything but. Definitely not. But, you know, you go to some of these discount stores, and I've done it myself, take school supplies. You buy the pencils. They don't sharpen properly. The erasers don't work. And I think many of people in your audience can relate to this. I don't know if you have kids, but it's shocking. Pens that run out of ink very fast pencils that won't sharpen, erasers that won't work. These are not value to me. These are not, no matter how low the price is, I still have to bring it home, try it out, get frustrated, and throw it away.
0: But sometimes it seems, for some people, I, I'm not one of those people, but but sometimes it seems that the bargain itself is the reward. It almost doesn't matter what you buy it's such a good deal. Like, you'd be a fool to pass it up, and, and that that gives some people satisfaction.
1: The thrill of the deal is incredibly compelling, and there's tremendous amount of psychological research on this. And I know this myself. It's a very strong emotion for me. If I see a, a, a cashmere sweater for thirty nine ninety nine, I make a beeline for it. And I have to, what I'm, you asked me for recommendations, What I would tell shoppers is you see that cashmere sweater for $39.99, and first you have to think, how is it possible that this cashmere sweater is $39.99? Is it as good a cashmere sweater as I would expect it to be? Is is it really warm? Is it doing the job? How much cashmere was used in the making of the sweater? Then take a walk around the store before you grab it and think about whether you really want it you really need it, because... I am the typical shopper who is very, very motivated by price. And that's been very helpful to me, is to walk away, think about it, and then if I still want it, think again, and then if I still want it, I'll purchase it. The other thing is I think many of us don't realize that we hate to part with money. All of us hate to part with money. Again, psychologists have have, ta- have done studies on this. We think of it as a loss. It's a bummer. Actually, Taking dollars out of our wallet and handing them over to someone else is a bummer. Credit cards, much less so. So if we use credit cards, the combination of bargains and credit cards is a pretty dangerous combination because we get the thrill of the bargain, what we perceive to get as a bargain, but the pain of pain is muted by using credit cards. So we tend to overbuy.
0: And I know I've read that shopping carts play a role in this. I mean, for years, department stores, and many still, but, but, but no department store had shopping carts. Grocery stores had shopping carts. But now, many department stores offer shopping carts.
1: Exactly. I mean, shopping carts were, by the way, they were controversial when they were introduced in supermarkets. Um, men didn't like shopping carts because they thought they were feminine. And women didn't like shopping carts because it reminded them of baby carriages. People hated shopping carts, <laughs> but they got adapted into um, in supermarkets. And then relatively recently, they got brought into department stores. And shop when you have a shopping cart, on average, you'll buy one more thing than if you don't.
0: Talk about reference pricing, because I, I think a lot of people don't know what they are and what they do.
1: Reference prices are the price you would pay if you were paying full price. And reference prices have a huge huge psychological impact on buyers. Even, even if you don't believe it, you say, oh, come on, I, I know, you know. Subliminally, you do believe it. Subconsciously, you do believe it. And reference prices have a huge impact. So we're much more likely to buy, say it's a, um, I don't know, a sweater. You're much more likely to buy that sweater if they said sweaters reduced from $100 and now cost 50 than if it's a, the same sweater for fifty dollars, but if you think about it rationally, you shouldn't be more likely because it's the same sweater.
0: Well, that's the whole way mattresses are sold. I mean, no no one's ever no one's ever paid full price, reference price for a mattress ever in the in the history of mankind. Every mattress is on sale.
1: Absolutely, that's a big trick. That's a Mattresses are always on sale because we only buy them once every 10 years or whatever. We don't really know the price, and we literally cannot look inside a mattress. We cannot see what they're really made of, and even if we could see, we wouldn't know what to look for. So mattresses are a classic case of where the reference price is always really high and the the mattress is always on sale, and we really don't know what we're getting.
0: Well, it certainly is a mind shift, and it's, and it's probably a better way to think about shopping, at least some of the time, at least for some of what you buy. I mean, you know, if I'm going to buy a banana, I, I think I'm going to find the cheapest banana I can find. But there are a lot of things where I think you're right. I mean, you know, how well it's made, how long it will last, does it really fit as good as it should fit? Those considerations ought to move up the list. But right now, for most of us, I think price is at the top of the list. Ellen rupel Shell has been my guest. She's a writer for The Atlantic Magazine and professor at Boston University, and her book is called Cheap, The High Cost of Discount Culture. There's a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks, Ellen. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I know has come to light in recent years is the connection between inflammation and disease. Maybe you've heard, I know I've heard, that, for example, gum disease, which causes inflammation in your mouth, can lead to heart disease, which seems kind of hard to grasp. But here to explain the connection and what you can do about inflammation to improve your health is Dr. Duke Johnson. Dr. Johnson is an internationally known medical researcher and authority on chronic diseases. He's medical director of the Neutralite Health Institute Center for Optimal Health in Southern California and he's author of the book Optimal Health. Welcome doctor, so I- explain this connection between inflammation and illness if you will.
2: Chronic inflammation is an overstimulation of our immune system and our immune system was really designed to protect us against bacteria, viruses and etc and it's a very powerful system but because of our industrialized lifestyle we are overstimulating it so that we're we're setting loose a, a dangerous active system and is actually in its chronic state causing damage which is leading to heart disease cancer diabetes etc
0: well when you say inflammation well when i think of inflammation i think of swelling like if somebody breaks their wrist and it all swells up that that swelling is inflammation in my in my medical opinion
2: great no You ask a very great question. Inflammation is really defined by four words, red, hot, swollen, and tender. And everyone's really familiar with it if you get a sliver under your skin. Your skin turns red, hot, swollen, and tender because it's an immune system war zone.
0: So how does that, those four symptoms that you just described, how does that translate into chronic disease?
2: Probably the easiest analogy I could give would be Let's say your your body is like a house, and there's a lion in the house designed to protect your body from mice, bacteria, viruses, etc. And so the way our immune systems are designed is that when a mouse comes in, the lion gets up, it gets angry, it goes over, kills the mouse, and then it lays back down again. Well, in in our uh, modern society, we have a lot of research, for example, around C-reactive protein, and there are Scores of inflammatory molecules that are associated with the immune system, that false chemicals, false fats, um, herbicides, pesticides, etc., which have been shown to be associated with increasing these molecule levels, are in essence what they're doing is kicking the lion. So the lion is up, it's walking around, it wants to kill something, it doesn't know what to kill, so it's knocking over lamps, tables, chairs, <laughs> etc.
0: So what is it that people are doing in their life that causes this problem?
2: Well, from my perspective, it, it was really obvious to see. I, I have patients in 30 different countries around the world. And so what I have done is looked in the World Health Organization to find out when the, what the major causes of death are for each of those countries and found that as each country uh, industrializes, then heart disease and cancer become major causes of death in in the united states it started at the turn of the twentieth century literally i've got a graph from the ministry of health of japan that heart disease and cancer were not an issue until after world war two they were not an issue in korea until uh, after the korean war uh... they were not an issue in china until the nineteen nineties and so in other words there's something about our industrialized lifestyle that basically brings on these chronic diseases. As our Western lifestyle spreads around the world with uh, using prepackaged foods, uh, you know, false fats, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we are falsely stimulating the immune system to be in a chronically active state.
0: And to stop that, well, what do we do?
2: Well, the way is, is in essence, get back to... The lifestyle we used to have pre-industrially. In other words, <laughs> uh, there, there are lots of um, steps we can take, including eating five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables. I mean, everybody used to, used to eat organically 50 years ago, <laughs> or 70 years ago, or so. And and um, but fruits and vegetables have been shown to be anti-inflammatory. The I think the greatest benefit of the Mediterranean diet is the fact that. In the Mediterranean diet um, was a lot of fish, and as we know, salmon contains omega-3. Omega-3 helps to reduce inflammation.
0: Is this the same reason that you sometimes hear doctors say and other medical people say that you should take an aspirin a day to reduce inflammation? Is this all part of the same thing?
2: In fact, you hit right on it, Mike. For example, think of this for a moment. People who have chronic gum disease have an increased risk of heart attacks. Now, what did the gums have anything to do with the heart? <laughs> okay, and then another thing is that, you know, we, we gave people aspirin to help reduce um, the, the, the final clotting mechanism that would occur in our coronary arteries that leads to a heart attack. Well, after about 10 years of recommending that people take aspirin, those individuals were studied and found that those people who took aspirin for many years had reduced risk of colon cancer. In other words, the the decreased inflammation was even decreasing the risk of colon cancer. So, in other words, you can started to see this whole scenario of how inflammation is intimately involved in many different scenarios, and that's how I lay it out very carefully in the book.
0: So, going to the dentist is good for your heart.
2: (laughs) Believe it or not, it is. You bet. (laughs) Anytime we can keep inflammation down, you know, especially chronically, and so almost every risk factor. And this was, in essence, my aha moment. I had taught uh, how to reduce uh, you know, the risk factors for heart disease, cancer, diabetes, et cetera, for many years. Well, in 2004, I found research that showed that, in essence, every risk factor that we've known for years that are associated with chronic disease also increase inflammation. So, in other words, those risk factors just weren't... The direct damage themselves, for example, smoking isn't just direct damage in and of itself from the chemicals in the smoke, but it also stimulates the immune system because the immune system sees smoke as being foreign,
0: and that causes inflammation.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. There's many, many studies that show that the risk factors are associated with elevated levels of these inflammatory molecules, and there are many of them. Uh, And but C-reactive protein is one of the most widely studied and it is a molecule that that the immune system releases, but there are interleukins and chemokines. There's just scores of them, actually, and so there's a lot of research coming out, and all of the research in the last five years has only supported this observation.
0: But what about diseases that run in the family? Does this inflammation thing trump that, or does heredity trump inflammation? Explain that.
2: Well, you know, in all honesty, I would say yes for the following reason is that a gene is really like a light switch. And just because you have a light switch in your house doesn't mean the light is on. A gene has to be turned off and, and turned on. And, and our, if we live the appropriate lifestyle, we can actually help keep bad genes turned off. And, and part of what we also find is that, for example, we now know through a, a new science called nutrigenetics that the foods that we take not only are absorbed into the cells, but they're also absorbed into the nucleus of the cell where the DNA is. And so anti-inflammatory molecules like omega-3 actually work at the level of the DNA, turning off some of these bad genes. So if we know what to do, even though we might have some bad genes, if we know how to live, we can turn off some of those bad genes.
0: Do supplements help?
2: they can help they definitely can help i mean certainly the foundation is a good diet there's just no substitute for a good diet so many people use supplements in a in a in a way of saying in essence well i'm just gonna eat lousy and make up for it with supplementation which is really a misnomer because what you take into your body is really a river of food and supplementation is only sprinkling on the river So supplements can't overwhelm, but if you have a good foundation, certainly what they do is they assure that we will reach adequate levels that we may have a difficulty finding in our diet. Um, for example, there's some research concerning vitamin D and vitamin D's benefits for reducing the risk of about four different cancers, and it's, it also has been shown to turn off the gene that's associated with MS. So, so just to have that assurance and that protection is a wise, wise step, in my, in my opinion.
0: So if the diet is so fundamental and so important to this whole discussion, how do you know what kind of diet to eat? If so much of the information is contradictory and who knows who's right, is there anything you can say definitively that pretty much everybody agrees is important to have in your diet?
2: You know, there are a lot of studies uh, that have shown that in essence five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables every day have so many benefits they reduce the risk of cancer They reduce the risk of heart disease they reduce the risk of of diabetes and people who are obese have a tendency to lose weight when they eat that because uh... fruits and vegetables are full of fiber and et cetera and they reduce you know our appetite in a lot of ways with that fiber there now where dark meats can come in is that especially if they're not free range or if they're not raised on organic foods if they're filled with uh... the animals have been filled with grains um, especially grains not grown organically, if the, if the dark meats have herbicides, pesticides, if they have antibiotics in them. I show in the book research that shows that all of these are associated with uh, not only inflammation, um, but in addition to that, that meat that is fed that way has a tendency to have higher levels of one of our required fats called omega-6, which is actually an inflammatory molecule, and we get way too much omega-6 in our diets today.
0: You also say that faith and belief can, well, can basically add years to your
2: life. You know, there's over 1,400 studies that have shown that people who have a committed religious faith have better health, and no one wants to talk about in the scientific community because they feel uncomfortable talking about this whole scenario, but when there are so many studies it's It's ridiculous, and it's an area of study at Duke University, National Institute of Health is doing research uh, Harvard is doing research on this but what's what's of interest, and no one has compared different religions. that's not the point what we find is the people who have what is called an intrinsic faith, meaning that they're they're committed to their faith, they have lower rates of heart disease, better recovery from heart disease, lower cancer rates, better recovery, lower drug abuse rates, better recovery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So no one is you know, science couldn't tell you what to believe, but whatever you do believe, believe it intently.
0: And other than recognizing that that is so, there's really no way to explain it.
2: Not at this point. I mean, there's been a lot of um, speculation. Some people have thought, well, it, it, maybe it's because of a group gathering, or maybe it's because of, of uh, a social atmosphere, etc., cetera, et cetera. But But when you compare people of a committed religious faith versus... Those who join service organizations, but the research has shown that the people with committed religious faith have better uh, health, and those that are, are joining service organizations don't get the same benefits. So it's not just the social atmosphere, it's really not known. That's why it's under study. It's, it's really fascinating.
0: But the link is clear.
2: The link is clear. After, you know, if you had three studies, you'd say, well, maybe there's something to this. But when there have been hundreds of studies, you have to think, wow, maybe there is something to. To having a, a committed faith. Now, there's certainly going to be secondary benefits of living a healthier life, and and you know maybe there's a reduction in stress. Who knows? But if that's why it's being studied.
0: Is pretty much all of the medical community on board with the connection between inflammation and disease? And and where did it come from? How did this? How did somebody pick this up?
2: The, the whole concept of inflammation being involved started in about 1995 when. Some inflammatory molecules were noted in patients who had heart attacks. And so at that point, the big question became, um, is inflammation a cause of heart disease or a result? And so it's been a debate until finally there's been a plethora of research that keeps pointing in that direction. The JUPITER trial came out, which is a huge study, where they took individuals with normal cholesterol and put them on a medication, a statin, which lowered their cholesterol. So they had normal cholesterol and they lowered it and they lowered it to a very low level, and they also found that those people had much lower heart attack rates later on. But what the statins do is they also lower inflammation. And so some of the concluding researchers in that study said, oh, well, the key to this is to lower uh, cholesterol to rock-bottom levels. But another group of researchers are saying, well, it's obvious that it's really the inflammation, because there was a study done by the Air Force a few years ago that did almost the identical thing they took normal cholesterol, people lowered it with a medicine, though, that didn't lower inflammation, and they found no difference in, in the heart uh, attack death rates. And so it really points to the fact that reducing inflammation is a real key.
0: And with diet and the right interventions, we, we know how to do that.
2: And we know how to do that. And in and, and my global perspective, it, you know, anyone who is sitting in my position would, would have seen what I saw. I'm, I'm not the most brilliant guy on the planet by any means. <laughs> But when, when I could see that this consistent pattern of industrialization and westernization was associated with chronic disease, it became so obvious that that's why I wanted to find to get this information out, because I think that's why there's been so much confusion. And I hate fads, because fads will cause people to run and get excited about something. But without the science there, or if that fad also increases inflammation, it's doomed for failure. And finally, I'd seen enough fads where I thought, I just can't take this anymore. I've got to write a book.
0: And you did. And the book is called Optimal Health. It is by my guest, Dr. Duke Johnson, who is an internationally known medical researcher and authority on chronic diseases and medical director of the Neutralite Health Institute Center for Optimal Health in Southern California. There is a link to his book in the show notes. So here we are in the middle of summer and most kids are out of school, unless they're in summer school. But why do kids get the whole summer off from school? It's commonly believed that school kids started taking summers off in the 19th century so they would have time to work on the farm. And as nice as that story is, it isn't true. If they did take time off for farming, it would have been in the spring and fall when crops are planted and harvested, not in the middle of the summer while they're all growing. Before the Civil War, kids did not get the summers off. But as people moved to urban areas and cities got denser, they also got hotter. All that brick and concrete created that urban heat island effect in the summer. So city dwellers would head up to the cooler countryside. School attendance wasn't mandatory back then, so classrooms were being left half empty every summer. At the same time, labor unions were taking hold and the eight-hour work week meant adults were getting more time for themselves. So taking vacations away from home became more popular. Advocates also started arguing that the brain was like a muscle and it needed a break. And on top of all that, there was no air conditioning and schools were miserably hot in the summer. So by the beginning of the 20th century, schools started giving kids more time off during the summer. And here we are. And that is something you should know. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and share this podcast with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.